turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. We have come to Paul's ministry to Ephesus. This is one of the most important ministries in history. He spends three years in the church at Ephesus and produces a letter as a result of his stay there. These two chapters in the book of Acts give us the account of his main ministry in Ephesus around the year 52 to 53 AD. Now to gather our bearings again where this happens in the story, you will recall that Paul is on his way back from his second missionary journey to go back and report in his home church in Antioch. He stops briefly in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila who have traveled with him, these two faithful partners in ministry. They begin the church there after his evangelism ministry in their own house, and then Paul goes on to Antioch. Shortly thereafter, a man from Egypt named Apollos, who becomes a very important leader in the church, he grows in the faith when he's in Ephesus under the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. Then he becomes strong in the Lord and is sent to Corinth to minister there for some time. It's at that time that Paul heads back on his third trip, and he stops at Ephesus, and he spends three years there, two years in Corinth, three years in Ephesus, and chapter 19 gives us that account. And there's some amazing things that happen here in this ministry in Ephesus, and we gather what happened, and then some of the results of that come in the book of Ephesians that Paul writes back to the Ephesians after he leaves there three years later. So here now as I read God's holy word, This is his inspired word. We can trust it completely, and we know it has for us what we need to know so that we might grow. Here as I read Acts 19, 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are amazed at the display of your power in this passage. Your sovereign hand working through your word is on full showing here with Paul ministering in Ephesus. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding of what we read and compel us to worship and to obedience as we seek your word to prevail mightily here in our day as you continue your saving and transforming work through Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the last steps I usually take in sermon preparation, for my good and your good also, is to read uh, some commentaries, maybe some sermons of different teachers or preachers or trustworthy and long-standing ministries that are on display. You can see uh, the whole of their teaching over the course of their lives. Usually they're old commentaries or comments. Uh, But I read one of a recent preacher, Derek Thomas, who I really respect, and he said something about the passage that made me feel a little bit better about my own organization of it. When he was prepping his congregation to preach it, he said this, we're going to read the first 20 verses of Acts 19, like we just did. And well, it's a preacher's nightmare. It's a total hodgepodge. It contains a whole lot of things. Trying to find some coherent theme as to all the little events that occur is very difficult. I felt better about that because it's definitely a story with all sorts of loose ends, at least it seems that way. But as I read the passage over and over and over again, um, there is something that sticks out, and I think maybe you will see it too. So before we begin, look at the passage and see a couple verses, and I think you'll find a theme there, an important theme. It's not new to this passage, it's really the underlying theme of the book. Verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Notice that the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The preaching of the word of the Lord is the essence of what happens in the book of Acts. And then all of the residents hear the word of the Lord, verse 10. Now, verse 11, notice, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's not about Paul, although Paul does some amazing things and the people recognize him. Acts describes this. But notice what causes this. Again, verse 11, this helps us with the theme that underlies these episodes we read of. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then skip down to verse 20. I think this brings it all into focus. In verse 20 it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Isn't that really the essence of the book of Acts? The word of the Lord increases and prevails. Jesus sends a spirit so that his followers could be his witnesses, that they could bring the word of the Lord, which is shorthand for the message of Christ. Lots of synonymous phrases or terms say the same thing. 
to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim his word. Verse 20 captures it. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And in this passage, there is the beginning of Paul's ministry to Ephesus, and he speaks the word of the Lord to different audiences, or at least they are in different places when he speaks it. And part of what we gather is that it doesn't matter where the word of God is proclaimed. Wherever Christ is proclaimed, it has an impact. It prevails over whatever is there. Now, it's not to say that everyone becomes a believer, but the message is known, and it takes root, and God grows it from there. We see that repeated here and throughout history, really. The prevailing word of God, the recurring theme in the book of Acts, and it encourages us insofar as our understanding of God's word's sufficiency, personally and corporately. And you see it happen everywhere that it is proclaimed. And first, it's on the streets. I mean, Paul gets there and meets some people who are called disciples. Let's see how it prevails there. Verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. This is where modern Turkey is essentially today. There he found some disciples. Now, we can't determine they're Christians just on the basis of disciples. That's a general word for people who followed someone else. They were learners. They were more serious than just listeners. They were disciples. They were attempting to follow a teaching. So Paul meets some who are disciples, and he says to them in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's something that he surmises about them. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And notice their answer in verse 2. They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, we know their knowledge must be limited. It's not like the Holy Spirit is not spoken of in the Old Testament. But you can understand uh, when they say what their understanding was, why they had not yet understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this reminds us a little bit of Apollos. If you remember when Apollos first makes himself known in Ephesus, he's in the synagogue and he's reasoning from the Old Testament about Messiah. He's accurate in what he says about the concept of Messiah, but he doesn't understand that Jesus has come and fulfilled it, and so Priscilla and Aquila are able to fill that in for Apollos, and then he puts it together and becomes a strong missionary and minister and leader in the church with this full knowledge of the gospel. He, he knew John's baptism, that there was a preparation and a coming of the Messiah, but did not connect yet with Christ. Seems like that's what we have here with these disciples, as Luke refers to them, as they meet Paul. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So then, verse 3, Paul says, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. So now it becomes clear. John was a preparation baptism. It was preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. They were still there, though, waiting for the Messiah, it seems. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. Recognize your sin. Turn from your sin. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. And that is Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Yeah, yes, John was pointing to the one who's coming after him, and I'm here to tell you that's Jesus. So he preaches the word of God as he meets these individuals. Seems like just on the street or just outside of the synagogue or wherever he is, he's not in the church formally, he's talking to these men and he's sharing with them Christ is the fulfillment. Verse 5, on hearing this, on hearing what? The word of God. Hearing the fulfillment, Christ. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is a, a kind of a simultaneous activity. As he baptizes them, they profess belief. His hands are on them, the Holy Spirit comes. And they speak in tongues in this instance. Now, it's important to mention this passage. Maybe you've heard friends tell you this. I have some dear friends who are charismatic, Pentecostal friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. And they will use this passage to say, see, I told you, this means that you believe in Christ and then you have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and then the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll know because you'll speak in tongues. And some will use this as a proof for that. And of course, I would caution dramatically against that position. Now, that comes for a couple reasons. One, we've already been speaking of. The book of Acts is a description of God's establishing the church after Christ's resurrection and sending of the Holy Spirit. It's very unique in so much of what happens. It's very early on. Um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is different after Christ uh, ascends into heaven and sends the Spirit compared to the way the Spirit ministered before that. The Holy Spirit was always present, but now he operates differently by Christ's commission and sending. And so it has, the fruit of that shows immediately when these first Christians receive the Holy Spirit. There's purpose for that that's unique to the time frame in which they live. The other thing we recognize is that with each new group of people who receive the word of God, the gospel, and it has its prevailing impact and they come to Christ, with each new group there is a manifestation of the Spirit coming. Christ commissioned to go into all the world to profess and proclaim the gospel. Starting at Jerusalem, going to Samaria and Judea, they stayed around them, and then the uttermost parts of the world. So what you have unfolding in the book of Acts is a picture of that. Remember Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came the first time, was in Acts chapter 2 with the Jewish audience. Then a few chapters later, the same thing happens, only with the Samaritans. That's that next concentric circle of gospel expansion. Then Cornelius, remember Cornelius, the Gentile believer who comes to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and his family? Now, it doesn't tell us there that it was manifested by speaking in tongues, but now we see the circle, the next concentric circle of gospel expansion move to Cornelius, and now we come to Ephesus, where these disciples who had heard the message, now they hear it in its fullness, and they received the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comes. It's unique to the time frame. One of the other reasons why we know it's not a normative practice, because most of us have not experienced it, that's not the base reason. In fact, very few people in history can you line up and say they received Christ and days later the Holy Spirit came and they spoke in tongues. I mean like most people you can think of. Why is this? Because it's not the norm. This was something unique to this frame, this time frame. The other issue is when Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians later, he doesn't mention anything about this like that. In fact, he actually speaks against that idea when he describes how salvation happens by God making dead people alive, making us alive together with Christ. He says that in Ephesians. doesn't mention anything about speaking in tongues after that happens. And then when he talks about how to become empowered, he says what? Put on the full armor of God, which is what? The word of God is the main issue there. Um, so the, the ministry of Paul about the word of God is consistent. There are some unique features that we see happen here. And I think for those reasons, we would be very cautious to make a regular understanding or normative occurrence out of this passage. Here we are with the word of God going to these disciples and now they are coming to Christ and the Spirit's come upon them. 
just like we've seen in other places. John Stott, commenting on this, gives us some wise words. He said, the laying on of apostolic hands, however, together with tongue-speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus as to Samaria in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. The New Testament does not universalize them, Stott cautions. There are no Samaritans or disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. There's no extenuating circumstance needing just this kind of ministry. Wherever the word of God is spoken, there's an impact. It prevails, and we see that here. But we also see it prevail in a very common place in this passage. Look with me at verse 8, and you'll see the normal approach, the customary approach where the word of God prevails in the house of worship, in this case, the synagogue. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. That's a long stay. That's a long residency speaking in the synagogue. He had already been there before, a year or so earlier. Now he's there for three months. And what is he doing? Speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is his normal pattern. And once again, to emphasize, see the descriptors in the passage. What did he do? He spoke boldly. He reasoned and persuaded about what? The kingdom of God. Another one of those shorthand forms of the preaching of Christ. The kingdom has come in Christ. Let's take apart those descriptions because I think it's helpful for us as we consider the nature of the preaching of the gospel. He spoke boldly. That is, he went there and spoke without fear. He was unafraid. He was unhindered in his speaking. He was uncensored. You could say what Paul gave was the uncut version. It was to the point. Unconcerned with consequences that may come from preaching it. And by the way, he knows consequences will come. They always come when you preach the gospel. But he also knows that the word of God prevails, and so it should be preached. No matter what comes on the short term, the long term, it will prevail. He does so with courage. He does so boldly, meaning with confidence and with expectation that the word he was preaching was true it would have its impact at some point. Notice reasoning. He reasons with the audience about the message he's preaching because the message is reasonable. It's logical. It makes sense. He was carefully showing the reasonableness of Christ as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament says. That's totally reasonable. And he with boldness expresses this to them. He shows from the Old Testament that Jesus was the forecasted Messiah. He's connecting Christ to what they knew for years through the Old Testament's expectation for deliverance. He is the deliverer. Through the Old Testament sacrificial pictures, no doubt, he was able to point out Christ is the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. This is how he preaches the kingdom of God, Christ as the king. He also does something of persuasion. Boldly, reasoning, in a persuasive manner. He didn't just present the rationale or the logic of the case or make the clear, reasonable connection with what the Old Testament says to the New. He then bid them to believe it. I want to persuade you to lay hold of Christ. The Christ I'm preaching, the Christ the Bible has forecasted, I want you to move from recognizing it to embracing it, to believing in it, to resting in Christ to trusting in him. This is not just another philosophical argument in a school of Athens or some other place. This is the truth, and I want you to lay hold of it. He speaks with that kind of persuasion. He wants to argue in favor of their their life being changed by it. 
It's not just another philosophy out there that we can shake heads. No, you have to come follow. Believe this. Lay hold of it. Rest in it. And his message is the kingdom of God. That's how, in this case, it's, it's, it's quantified. It's one of the first times that Luke uses it with Paul here. Luke uses it in his gospel many times. It simply is another way of speaking about Christ. The kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is conquered through King Jesus' taking captive our hearts by convincing us of our sin through the Holy Spirit and giving us faith to lay hold of him. It's an invisible kingdom that's way more vast than any earthly kingdom, way more powerful. Outside influences can't stop it, not for real. It could, see, it could seem to do so, but in reality, the, the kingdom of God transcends boundaries and borders and normal human limits. That's what makes it so great and unique. That's what makes Jesus so powerful and so worthy of our worship. That's why he is King Jesus. And Paul's preaching King Jesus. He's preaching our need for knowing Christ. This proclamation of the word obviously happens most forcefully in a house of worship like it does in the synagogue. But there are many houses of worship that have long forgotten that King Jesus is king. It's still a place where it has to be emphasized and proclaimed, and we see it here prevail. What happens? Well, what usually happens? Verse 9, we'll see it again. But when some became stubborn, so after some time of overtly preaching the kingdom of God, preaching Christ, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. It was even starting to draw people out to speak openly in the synagogue. So in this instance, Paul withdraws from them, not to stop preaching it, but he goes to a different venue, you might say, a different audience or a different place. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. And now we'll see the word of God prevail in the halls of academia, in the lecture halls, the great halls of philosophy and discussion and in, in academics, in intellectual pursuit. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily now in the hall of Tyrannus. We don't know exactly who Tyrannus is, but he owned a place and it is properly a hall, a lecture hall, you might think of, a place that people know, knew you could go to, usually for rent, where a teacher would rent it and speak and do lectures. And this continued, look at verse 10, for two years, two years Paul essentially rented out this hall or provided for it by his livelihood, however, we don't know exactly, but two years is a long residency anywhere, let alone in the hall of Tyrannus. It came to the point that it says in verse 10, with him being there lecturing daily, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now we know from some manuscripts that the word daily there in Greek, it has a specific meaning. It's with reference to the hours. I know it seems specific, but this is how the, the language works. From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We're talking a five-hour swath in the middle of the day. And one commentator says the Greek manuscript of Acts, the Codex Beza, advises discussions were held between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. It goes on to say, why is this so culturally? The part of the day when men were expected to be conducting leisure activities in a Greco-Roman culture, not work. Ephesus was a free state, so it had some independence from the larger Roman happenings. The commentator goes on, during those hours, between 11 and 4, men pursued their hobbies. They rested or they took part in great discussions in a lecture hall or a school, as it were. This is a hall of academia, and the Apostle Paul is there, and it comes to the point 
where all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. See the word of the Lord prevailing even in the halls of academia. Now, how could it be that all of Asia would know? It doesn't mean every individual person had full knowledge of the, all the content of what Paul taught. Think of it more like this, and I know this is a tough comparison because it's not as sacred, but if I told you um, David Copperfield, you would think to yourself, David Copperfield, he's, most of you probably know he's been in Las Vegas for like 15 years in residence, and you know he's a magician, and you know he made a bus disappear once. He made Niagara Falls disappear once, apparently. All right, you know, what do I know? I just know because he's been resident there so long. There are other people in that category around the, the country. Like if you were Hamilton playing in New York City for so long, you may not have seen it, but you've heard about it because it's popular. And then you ask him, hey, what's Hamilton? And people start telling you what it's about. Um, Paul in residence in Ephesus, an important city, 300,000 people, a library second only in size to the one in Alexandria. There he is speaking in a prominent place. People came to know this apostle speaking there. And so they came to know the, con what is this Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about this Christ. He's saying who died and was resurrected. He's telling the Jews that he's the fulfillment of Messiah. He's telling everyone that we have to believe in him. So in this way, Asia becomes evangelized. And remember what we mean by evangelization. It means to proclaim or herald Christ in a place that hasn't heard it. Or maybe the place has heard it, but it's a reproclaiming. It's not taking into account how many people receive it or accept it. That's not what determines evangelization. Uh, that has to do with conversion or people coming to Christ. But evangelism, the thing we're called to do, is to proclaim the message of Christ. And through this residence of Paul, the word of God prevails in that it is known to everybody. The message of Paul was known. It may have been rejected by many, but they knew it. They heard it. They understood it. I wonder if you ask people today how many would know what the gospel is, I'll bet you the, the result or the answer you would get is far different today than you would have heard 20 years ago. I don't think that America is evangelized. I think it still lacks a clear proclamation of the gospel in every place it could. I know it sounds hard to believe, but I think it's true. The people don't know. They haven't clearly been told. And so as the word of God goes forward, you see it on the street, you see it in the halls of religious institutions, the halls of houses of worship, and in academia, where it's preached and proclaimed, it has its impact, even to the point of prevailing. You know, thinking of this academic setting and the impact that it had, uh, in the Reformation era, John Calvin started essentially a school, a ministry training school. It started from the time that really there was a day school before that from children all the way up and through the high school period, and then some would go into ministry training. People would come from all over Europe to study there. John Knox, who started the Scottish Reformation, said it's the most perfect school of Christ he'd ever seen since the Apostles. Uh, because it had done so well to teach the Word of God, the proclamation of it, to convince those students that this is the, the, the key to evangelizing the world is to bring the Word of God clearly, meaning Christ. And so people went from that place all over Europe, and the, the heyday or the golden era of the Reformation uh, happened in that time frame, that second generation after when people had been trained this way. Well, the school of the apostles, that's what we're looking at here. Two years of Paul teaching in the halls of academia, if you will, teaching and preaching the gospel. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Finally, I want you to notice the word of God prevailing in a different way. It has to do with the personal lives of those in Ephesus who are just living with the difficulties and the darknesses of sin, um, the demonic oppression, the, just the grip that so much evil has. And so with 
Paul's preaching, the Lord was granting light to be shown into the darkness, the light of Christ. And amazing things were happening, supernatural things, things that are not on the norm. It's not that they don't happen in this way anymore, but it's not usual, and that's what's being expressed here. And notice how this unfolds, and it's meant to show the impact of the ministry. It's not to elevate Paul, but to demonstrate what God was doing through Paul in this incredible epoch in time. Look at verse 11, as we see the word of God prevailing over the powers of darkness on several levels. And God was doing extraordinary. And extraordinary means it's extraordinary. It's not the usual. He was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, to give an example. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is most likely a reference to whatever he wore when he was tent making, when he was doing his job. It could have been uh, a, a sweatband on his head or on his arms to keep the sweat from dripping into what he was doing. And so afterwards, he's not can't be everywhere. He's teaching or whatever. People, the Lord granted that people had even things that he touched. And the Lord, in this extraordinary epic, used that to show his own power in healing people or delivering people goes on, verse 13, another episode. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, these are Jewish uh, religious teachers who would address the problem of demon possession, which was a real problem, especially here in the first century. It's still a problem the world over, but here especially in this time period. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now notice what they did. They had Uh, noticed and watched what Paul was doing. These are Jewish exorcists, so we have no reason to believe they were Christian ones, at at least at first. And so they see what Paul does and was successful concerning, so they try it. Uh, You definitely get the picture that they don't believe it necessarily, or they don't know what to make of it, but they think it's a formula. They say, we don't know for sure, but notice what they do and how this unfolds. They went to evil spirits and said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now notice what happens to them. This is kind of a a subplot to the story. The the plot is that Paul's ministry had become well-known and powerful because he was preaching Christ. And these Jewish exorcists tried to use that to their advantage. The evil spirit answered them, verse 15, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They must have known pretty quickly it was a mistake to just try to invoke a name like a formula. That's not the point, though, of the story. The point is, the ministry of Paul had even gotten to the ears of the demons. He was preaching Christ. He was preaching Christ. These these Jewish exorcists did not lay hold of Christ personally, it seems. They're just using the name like as a formula, and it backfired on them, but everybody saw what happened. They knew what the demon said. In verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the point. The word of God goes forth. God grants extraordinary things to happen as people come to Christ. People recognize it. They're in awe of God because of it, and all of it pushes to this end that the name of Jesus would be extolled. And it doesn't stop there. It starts to really impact the personal uh, inhabitants of Ephesus who believe. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came 
confessing and divulging their practices, recognizing they had leaned on the occult or leaned on superstition, leaned on voodoo-like practices, plus their Christianity. And they recognized this does, Jesus is Lord of the demons. He's Lord of everything. Lord over the diseases, Lord over everything. So we've got to get rid of these things that we're laying hold of, these superstitions, these occult practices. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Remember, books in those days were all handwritten. There's no printing press. Probably could be decades, if not centuries old. Occult practices lined out in them. Who knows what's in there? But they bring them and burn them, which you may say, well, they should. Books are super valuable in these times. And they continued, and they counted, verse 19, the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's tens of thousands of dollars in today's dollars. In verse 20, the capstone. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Christ power over disease, his power over the demons, his power over magic. This remarkable epic in the time of Paul's ministry to Ephesus eventually produces a ministry that spreads throughout the world in that place, provides us a letter that Paul writes to the Ephesian church that we still study in earnest today, loaded with details about God's salvation in our walk with him. All of this comes from this golden era of God's special work and inspiration through the apostle. The word of God, my brothers and sisters, always prevails wherever it's proclaimed. There are extraordinary effects that we read here, but there are always effects. There is always an impact. One of the reasons why the last two weeks I've picked for our profession of faith, those great questions and answers in the confession that remind us of the means or the tools of God's grace or of God's method for us to grow. The word being primary tells us about the other means of grace, like the sacraments and prayer. But the word is primary, and from the word, that's why, where we find our victory. That's where we find change. That's where we find impact. That's true for us corporately as a church, to be faithful to the preaching and proclaiming of the word, no matter what, because that's what impacts. And personally, the steady diet we need for change in our own life. For all the things you may be dealing with, and I'm sure there are a number of them, the word of God is the starting place for your sustenance, for for change, for God's grace to be realized. Sometimes it's just to set our minds to worship again. It's not like it gives a flat-out answer for everything, but it sets our minds so that the the name of Jesus is extolled in our own hearts, then our demeanor, the way of our life, bends a different direction. And that comes from the word which always, always prevails. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the revelation we have provided for us through the apostolic writers and the prophets that you have preserved and given to us, the account of the growth of your church by your hand. Lord, please grant us more faith to believe in your word and its power. Give us boldness to proclaim Christ. Give us courage in a time and a place where it seems people don't want to hear your word. Lord, we see in Paul's ministry to Ephesus that your word proclaimed gains momentum and impact 
So give us courage and expectation. Lord, we are thankful that you have made the way of eternal life so plain in Christ. Please pour out your spirit so that a great harvest of souls would be witnessed in our times and in this place, this area where you have placed us. Give us as a church faithfulness to proclaim your word and as individual ambassadors for Jesus, courage to make plain to those whom we know and love how they can be right with you through Christ. And may your glory prevail for the honor of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.